The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to The Beautiful Things, a radio show about the Catholic perspective on the arts. We'll be covering a wide range of topics throughout the season, and today we'll be discussing medieval illumination. You are listening to the medie- a medieval polyphonic piece, um, The Salve Mater. The Beautiful Things is a production of Restoration Radio and underwritten by True Restoration Media. Streaming videos for purchase or download are available on truerestorationmedia.com. As with all our shows, we will not be taking callers. However, if you have a comment or a question, we will we always appreciate our audience, and you can reach us via Twitter. Our handle is at True Restoration. I'm your host, Magdalene Zapp, and tonight I'm joined by Mr. Daniel Mitsui, an artist who specializes in medieval-type illumination. And would you say Japanese art, Mr. Mitsui, considering what you've, you've done so far in that area? Well, I'd say Japanese art is sort of a tertiary interest of mine. Um, Most of what I do is in the style of late medieval art, and I also do a number of works in early medieval art, and uh, I've been exploring some Japanese art as well and some some things from uh, cultures outside of uh, historic Christendom. Well, welcome to the show. So glad you could join us this evening. Yes, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Flattered by the invitation. I started out every show with a piece that either caught my interest or or one that I thought would be a good theme for the show. And for the show, uh, obviously, there were a plethora of pieces to choose from, so I had a lot of difficulty in in figuring out which one I was going to pick. I chose a piece from the Book of Kells. If you look at our, if our listeners will look at our show page, you can see this, uh, uh, the beautiful piece we have on there. One of the, um, the, the Book of Kells is, would you say it's one of the most illustrious and well-known manuscripts from the Middle Ages? Yes, and I think it's one of two towering manuscripts of a very interesting style that developed in um, really uh, the British Isles in Northumbria and in Ireland between about the 6th and 9th centuries. Um, It's a style that's fascinated me ever since I was really probably about 14 years old and first encountered it. And um, the Book of Kells and the Lindisfarne Gospels are the two most um, complete and most famous manuscripts from that era. Uh, the Lindisfarne is probably the one I encountered first, and um, the one that, all things being equal, um, I probably uh, draw more inspiration from personally. Uh, the Book of Kells is more fully illustrated, uh, has many more pictures than most um, surviving manuscripts from that era. And uh, both of them are really, I think, pinnacle examples of the Illuminator's art. Have you ever had the opportunity to see them in person? I have not. I have not. Um, I've really not all that well-traveled, um, although I'm certainly uh, looking at reproductions of them you know, pretty often. Right. Oh, yes, definitely. But is your... So you say that, you know, for you, they're a source of inspiration. Do you... Um, 
Do you find that your work in general is more reflective of, of that type? The so early, that's that the I, early, early medieval, right? I'd say that my first interest and the one that inspires maybe four-fifths of the work I do is the art of the late Middle Ages in Northern Europe. Um, I'm talking about the 14th and 15th centuries in England, uh, France, Germany, Flanders. That's really my focus as an artist. <clears throat> Every year I try to do a few works in that early medieval Northumbro Irish style just because I find it too fascinating to set aside, and it's really the first sort of manuscript illumination that I became uh, interested in. Um, it's one of the first works that I encountered that really moved me as, a, as an artist, even as a young you know, sort of an adolescent, I was fascinated by those books. And so uh -huh. I I do a few works in that style typically every year. And I would you know want to continue doing that throughout my entire life. I it's not um the majority of the works I do, but um it's something that's very dear to me. And I find a special satisfaction in creating um works in that style if they turn out well because I've spent so much of my life trying to master it. It's very difficult. Um, <clears throat> just uh well, we'll we'll have to get intricate. more into we'll have to get more into what makes it difficult uh later in the hour. Sure. But I um right now though I wanted to ask you what what is it exactly that makes I mean we can say that, you know, early medieval is one thing, later medieval is another thing, but what makes the difference? And is there a difference between Celtic specifically versus well, you mentioned Flanders and I would think Italy perhaps had its own style. Could you give us some, well, some insight into the, the differences? Well, in the style that's my focus, I said the Northern European um, late Middle Ages, that's kind of the era that's known to art historians as the international Gothic in that this is the Gothic art sort of starts in the late uh, 12th century and uh, flourishes in the 13th and then continues through the end of the Middle Ages. And so during that time period, um, you know, between England, Flanders, uh, you know, France, Germany, all these, you know, Bohemia, these artistic centers in Northern and Europe and um, in some places in Western Europe, <clears throat> uh, I'm sorry, Eastern Europe, you have really a very common um, artistic sensibility that isn't, you know, a good art historian would be able to spot you know, regional differences, but it's a common artistic language. I think that what distinguishes that work from sort of Italian manuscript illumination and art in general of that time is that in Italy there's still a very strong influence of Byzantine art. You can see that in the uh, the treatment of figures and in the iconographic arrangements all the way through to the end of the Middle Ages. Um, oh, that's fascinating. Like, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, no, not at all. Um, so, I, I didn't realize that uh, the Byzantine had so much of an influence on Italy at the time. Yeah, I think. Did you that, say it's um, like there's more, like there's more symbolism in that type of illumination. Well, it's just a, it's just a different. Um, I wouldn't say that there's more or less and. To be honest, Italian art is not something I've studied as intensely as Northern European art. I certainly respect it and would like to study it, but it hasn't been um, what I've uh, concentrated on to date. I think that in medieval Italy, you can explain a lot of its sort of interesting peculiarities as kind of a, 
sort of a crossing, a meeting place between the arc of Gothic France to the north and, you know, sort of Byzantine influence to Greece to the south and to the east. And Do you so think that's... that... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you, um, in my research for the show, I remember I was reading about how the monks were the ones who, initially, I guess, in the early part of the Middle Ages, it was the monks who were um, doing all of the, the manuscript illumination. But as time went on, so like, say, into the, the later part of the Middle Medieval Ages, which would be your area of expertise, at that point, it, it it almost became like a business kind of a thing where you could go out and commission an artist to do your, you know, your Bible or, or your, your Psalter or whatever it was. Um, so the type of work that you'd be doing, this wouldn't be something that would be exclusive to the monasteries, like this type of work. Is that correct? Yes. Or would have been um, exclusive, I should say. Well, I'd say that um, the biggest distinguishing difference between early medieval and sort of later medieval um, artwork and manuscript illumination is that in the early Middle Ages, in sort of the, the territory of the, the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of Europe was still mission territory. And so you had these, you know, reasonably or relatively isolated centers of monastic culture that might be surrounded by um, you know, hostile, uh, uh, hostile environment. And so a lot of the arts and especially the religious arts, remained within the monastery. And you also had a certain difficulty of uh, communication and travel from one place to another just because it was not, um, you did not necessarily have, uh, uh, you know, a Christian society established yet. And so you had very distinct regional styles develop in these monastic centers um, where the art was mostly being done by the monks. And those, uh, as the uh, sort of European civilization progressed and Christianized, you had more, you know, cross currents and more development of uh, an international style across the continent. Um, ah. Probably in the 12th century, you had this 11th and 12th centuries. You had a real flourishing of um, monastic art centers, places like uh, Stavelot and Hildesheim and Helmershausen where you had, you know, goldsmithery, you had manuscript illumination, you had, um, you know, enamel work all being done in these really sophisticated level in the monastic workshops. Now, when the Gothic comes about, um, it grows sort of out of one of these monastic workshops, which is that of Saint-Denis, um, where Suger was the you know, sort of the towering intellectual figure um, that helped generate the Gothic style. And so he was a monk, but he Can you also repeat employed, his name again? What, what was his name again? Uh, Suger of Santini, so S-U-G-E-R, who was uh, an art patron, you know, theologian, abbot. As to whether he was an artist himself, I'm not sure if there's a really uh, an art historical consensus about that, but he oversaw the construction of the first Gothic church and also had a very strong influence on the... Um, the smaller scale arts of that time. And he employed some of the best layman artists of his age. Um, names uh, such as uh, Nicholas of Verdun and Godfrey of Clare. And as to whether the, um, is the this, sort of flourishing... Is this, just because, is this just because he had a gift for knowing who the good artists were? Or he just had gobs of money and could, could hire whoever he wanted? Or... 
Well, I mean, it was, seems uh, peculiar to me that he would be kind of like unique in this. Does that make well, sense? Well, it, it was an affluent, um, it was an affluent uh, monastery in which uh, had enjoyed the patronage of the kings of France. He also, I think, was just a, a real towering genius, the sort that only comes along once in an age, and really uh, so many ideas that basically went to the creation of Gothic art just crystallized in his uh, in his projects. Um, but really, you know, once you get into the Gothic age, you have um, more and more artwork being done by lay people, and really the um, the manuscripts from that era that I really enjoy and really look to most commonly for influence were done by lay workshops. Uh, now, these were men who would have been members of the guild, and so they would have had a certain, um, you know, certain structuring of life around, uh, you know, religious ceremonies and such as part of the guild. And so I don't think it's totally um, comparable to, like, a secular professional. But um, certainly it was not the exclusive province of monks to do well, manuscript illumination. That's actually a great point because it leads right into my next my next question for you. Um it seems like if any artwork would be expressive of the time period in which it's created, a medieval art would certainly be expressive of a time when the general populace, um, and not just as the lay people, obviously, um, were more concerned with the four last things than anything else. Or we could say like the mm-hmm. entire culture and life was centered around religion. Um, so, you know, like you were saying, like there were, you know, it's not like with these guilds, the religious aspect was completely kind of left to the wayside. It's going to be worked into into the uh, the artwork. Um, yes, I think. Well, I think in the Middle Ages, you can't really um, speak of secular culture in the way that we talk about it now. I mean, secular originally meant outside of the monastery. It didn't mean not religious. Um, and, you know, all life, including, you know, the life of the lay professionals, was ordered along religious lines because that's just, um, was the, that was the ordering force in society. Inconceivable to <laughs> to, to modern America. <laughs> well, it's very different. <laughs> yes, yes. Hard, hard for, uh, hard for me to, to relate at all. I mean, I've got a really kind of the whole pick up and jump out kind of a thing to be able to even mm-hmm. comprehend that kind of a a mentality. Um, but I, I did find that um, interesting in the sense that, you know, for us as Catholics, we could say that it's just kind of another way to see how that that time period could be idealized, right? Because because it's the it was the time period when our culture was more conducive to to God and to the practice of our religion. Yes, I, I think so. And I think that um, whenever you talk about idealizing the Middle Ages to uh, just um, you know people who are maybe not religious or who um, are a bit more resistant to uh, that sort of talk, you know, they'll think that's you know, that's that's naive, that's romanticism. Oh, you, you mean the uh, the people who say you know you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube? Those those people. Yeah, well, I mean, the point is not to uh, to try to recreate a historical era in all its details. The, the the point is to acknowledge that, you know, there was a religious and philosophical worldview that animated the Middle Ages and its culture, and that is evidenced by its artwork. 
that is true and correct. And I don't think that that worldview is peculiar to those few centuries. I don't think it was simply a product of the historical circumstances that were going on in those centuries. And I don't think that it's uh, peculiarly European. I think that this is just this is just the worldview that um, that Christianity wants us to have, and as such, it's universally and eternally relevant. Um, I think and obtainable that, again. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, even even within the to, context of our our modern age and technology, it's that it's certainly an interesting argument. Well, you have to break through certain uh, intellectual barriers and such, but. Um, you know, I don't think the true ideas ever become outdated. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, certainly I am thinking about this in most commonly simply because of my profession in artistic terms, but I don't think that, I don't feel any great driving need to try to Im, you know, improve or change upon the, the principles of medieval art because I think that they are simply true principles. And, you know, obviously my application of them in my own work is going to, reveal something of my own um, personality and of the desires of my patrons who live in, you know, the contemporary 21st century world. Um, probably the majority of them are Americans, although certainly not all. And so, you know, these things wind up getting updated and adapted just as a matter of course, but that's not something that I consciously do. I don't think that the medieval art is in any way lacking, that I am out to improve it. And I think that the whole medieval worldview is um, is like that. I I think that when you talk about idealizing an age, people get the wrong impression. They think, well, are you are you saying this is heaven on earth? And then they'll think of this example and that example to prove how silly that is. But nobody ever said that the Middle Ages were heaven on earth. And I think that their great merit is that they didn't try to create heaven on earth. They um, they you know they had the same problems that we had now that we have now and we have the same problems that they have you know we're all you know we're all ignorant we're all violent it's uh you know it's a society it's uh, it's just the the product of living in a fallen world but it's a question of what do you do with that and how do you, you deal with that and in terms of uh, how do you form a you know a, a religious or philosophical or artistic response to the world that you live in in order to um, orient it towards uh, eternal things. And I think the Middle Ages did that correctly. I couldn't agree with you more. That was wonderfully said. (laughs) Um, Speaking of, you know, a meeting of the, you say, like, the 21st century with the the 14th and 15th centuries, um, or even earlier, in preparation for the show, I was watching a BBC documentary on illuminated manuscripts. And they made the point that uh, St. Augustine was the first one really to get out there and start using an illuminated manuscript as an evangeliz- uh, evangelization or proselytizing tool. Um, it was a Bible. Or it wasn't even a Bible, it was just the four Gospels. Um, but uh, they made the point that because because so many of the people couldn't read um, basically, it was an illustration of the Gospels or illustrations of the Gospels, depicting scenes um, from the Gospels. So they were the BBC uh, show was arguing that this was basically the world's first comic book 
um, artwork directed to, towards those who, who couldn't read. What do you think of that analysis? Do you think it, it integrates its worth or to, to draw that kind of a parallel? So I think there's sort of a, um, it's almost a cliche among um, art historians to emphasize the idea of medieval art as being um, some substitute for literacy for people, for a largely illiterate population. And mm-hmm. I think there's an element of truth to that, certainly. Um, but with illuminated manuscripts, I'd say that I can't imagine that people were writing books and illustrating them, expecting that different people would read them as see them. That when you're creating a book and putting pictures in it, you're expecting those pictures to be seen by somebody who can read. Um, although I suppose you could lift it up and uh, and use it as a, as a demonstrative tool. But as for the, uh, the comparison to comic books, that's kind of an interesting one for me personally, because uh, for several years I actually considered going into uh, comic art. That was sort of the last artistic phase that I went through before I really decided to focus almost exclusively on medieval religious art. And so I've done a lot of study of, um, you know, and a lot of thought and, you know, a fair amount of practice of comic strips, comic books. I've done some film animation, although that's, that's you know, different in, in many respects. And uh, well, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you: is, is what kind of a, you know, what kind of a parallel, I guess, you could draw? What's the, what is it that makes it distinct from just doing like regular illustration for, uh, for comic books? Well, in terms, well, in both cases, you're using a combination of pictures and text to communicate. And I wouldn't call illuminated manuscripts the first comic books because I think you can you can trace the origin of comics through you know certain popular printed literature of the you know 17th and 18th centuries but that's where it has its origin and that's the tradition it grew out of um, but I do see certain um, common ideas at work like for example uh, in medieval art you'll often see a banderole sort of like a like a scroll like a like an unrolling um, scroll coming from a person's mouth with words written on it to indicate speech. And sometimes you will see like a red line being drawn from a person's head to a certain object to indicate that they're thinking about it. And that's ah. you know, a pictorial convention that's very similar to the speech and thought bubbles that you have in comics. Um, and so you have... You, you're you giving have us a whole new advantage when we're looking at these manuscripts now because, I mean, I don't know how many of my listeners didn't, I didn't know that, but I didn't know that. I mean, I'm sure I've looked at manuscripts before I'm thinking, what is that red line doing there? So, thank yeah. you. <laughs> sure. But, I mean, there's, they're, they're working out similar problems, and I, do, I wouldn't say that it denigrates the manuscripts to compare them to comics, but that's um, perhaps because I'm a little peculiar in that I hold comics in very high regard. I think that some of the most vital and interesting art of the 20th and 20th, well, I'd say most of the 20th century has been done in comics. Um, I think that it flourished mostly with the um, in the early 20th century, and that's where I find the ones that I like the best. But I don't, I don't, I wouldn't consider that an insult. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. my producer Stephen Heiner, I'm sure my producer will just love you for that. He's also a fellow comic book lover. So sure. Um, well, uh, that was a an interesting um, topic to discuss. 
I wanted I had to throw some you know the idea when I first saw that the idea of this parallel with comic books I had to to ask you about that one. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, well, going on moving on to our our next question is that actually a, a philosophical more of a philosophical one. Um, so it's been argued that humanity we've lost so much of our heritage through the dark ages. Um, basically, it was the monks that really held on to everything and, and um, reproduced it for us. We, we wouldn't have had Aristotle's works or Plato's works. Um, but that there was also this, at the same time, there was this rejection of classical antiquity and classical antiquity's art forms. So like the realistic depictions of people and animals and statues or in, <coughs> excuse me, in statues or in, uh, oh, oh, frescoes, that's what I'm thinking, frescoes. Um, and today they attribute this to the idea that the Christian world was following in Plato's philosophical footsteps that art can only be a deception therefore let's not pretend that we can come close to a replica of the original in fact we shouldn't even try but let's just redirect the purpose of art towards highlighting the truth of the text over the beauty of an image Um, but couldn't we, wouldn't you argue that despite despite that, illuminated manuscripts have their own beauty? I mean, it's not like they're just purely there for um, symbolism or for uh, to, to to make a statement about the text. They, they're genuinely beautiful to me. Well, I would I would perhaps phrase it a little differently. Um, and I'm not a philosopher and can't really speak too much about Plato, having not read too much of. Uh, I'm, I'm not either. Work directly. I'm not either. But I think that the attitude could more precisely or perhaps more, uh, well, just the way that I would put it is that in medieval art, you have this sort of principle of honesty. Um, that's how uh, Hugin, the architect, put it, in that the art shouldn't really pretend to be something other than what it is. And so, like I said, Hugin, the architect, really um, was a Gothic revivalist, you know, this is after the Middle Ages, but a man who was certainly a great student of them. What, what century that, would this be? The uh, 19th, 19th yeah, century. Yeah, okay. I, I thought and he, Yeah, he um, was you know, applying the argument to um, architecture, and he said, in medieval architecture and Gothic architecture, you don't just like construct ornament and slap it on the wall, and you don't try to conceal you know, the actual structural elements of the building. What you do is you take the actual structural elements of the building and you make those beautiful. And I think that same principle works throughout medieval art, is that if you're creating a painting, you shouldn't pretend that it's a sculpture or you shouldn't pretend that it's, um, you know, you shouldn't be trying to fool the eye into creating this illusion that you're looking at something other than what you're looking at, but you should make that thing in itself a thing of beauty. And um, that, I think, is a a very sound principle for for creating art, is that you just don't try to deceive people into, um, you know, you don't don't create a picture with the idea that we have this conceit in our mind, which which, um, if we hung it on the wall, it looks like you're looking out a window. You know, instead say, well, what are we trying to communicate in this picture? And let's place the objects within it make the relative sizes and the perspectives in it actually communicate that thing. And 
when that changes, then you sort of have this um, widespread um, use of linear perspective and techniques like that to basically create this conceit that if you hang this picture on a wall, it looks like you're looking out a window. I think you actually lose a lot of the communicative ability there. Um, the communicative ability, I, I guess, uh, like when you're talking about um, two dimension versus three dimension, correct? Like well, the, the, about, the introduction and in later, the later Middle Ages, like more of a three dimensional look versus this, this kind of a flatter. But you're saying that the the flatter. I'm trying to get, get a grasp of, of um, trying to understand you. Um, the flatter medieval work was more more honest. It was more communicative of of whatever point it was trying to make. Well, I would say that um, what I'm trying to make the distinction is between medieval art and art that uses a system of linear perspective in which you try to arrange the sizes and positions of objects as if you were basically looking through a window. Uh And in medieval art, even if you use very realistic figures and whatever, you're going to, if somebody is very important in this scene, you're going to make them prominent whether they are you know, far okay, away or close to you, you're going to make them large. Um, whether they would, if look, if you're looking through a window or, you know, some people are going to be in front of others. There's going to be this blocking that. And in medieval art, because you're trying to convey a message, you rearrange things so that the important things are not hidden behind something else, so that they're not, um, you know, so that they're not too tiny to see. You can You can play with sizes and positions in order to bring a message across because you're not simply trying to create something that looks like um, basically like a photograph. Um, Photographs were made to imitate the conventions of perspectival painting. And we sort of have gotten accustomed to just thinking, well, that's that's realistic. That's good art. Well, it has many disadvantages. Um, If you use this, you know, very strict perspectival system, you kind of, um, you limit your ability to show multiple events in the same scene. You limit your ability to uh, to uh, to show various um, things that would um, perhaps be blocked by each other in a particular scene um, mm-hmm. because you can sort of lift them up above each other in the picture plane. It's, it's kind of difficult to say without a visual example. Um, but there are also, you know, philosophical implications to um, some of these more supposedly realistic perspectival forms of artwork that were done, you know, developed during the Renaissance and pretty much um, sort of took over afterwards for most fine art painting, um, which I, you know, I don't do that type of work myself. And, uh, right. and it's, because, it's because I think it's more effective as a, as a, a tool of communication to use the, uh, the medieval uh, the medieval conventions. Well, yeah, speaking as a as a method of communication, I'm just thinking back to one of the, you know, I was thinking, sorry, one of my children is up. I was thinking <laughs> back to one of the uh, uh, pieces that you did recently for, was it a hospital or a doctor's office? And you had done, I remember I was reading about it on your blog, which uh, our listeners really have to check out um Mr. Mitsui's blog, because it has just a wealth of information. Um, but we'll put up the link on Twitter. Um, but going back to this piece, though, they you used various um, 
types of leaves, right, and uh, herbs and whatnot that would have applied to medieval medicine at the time, or just just medicine in general? Oh, well, that actually, um, that was kind of an unusual project for me because it was a secular commission. Um, I do very few secular commissions, but that one was a commemorative piece for the American College of Surgeons. Um, And so I constructed an ornamental border out of these various plants that were, you know, done in the manner that they would be used to form a border in an illuminated manuscript. Um, But they were the plants that would have been the sources of early surgical drugs. Uh, There was grapes that were used um, to create wine for antiseptics. There are poppies for the um, morphine and all those related drugs that are the painkillers. And there there were mandrakes, which were used as a primitive anesthetic. Um, Like I said, that's, that's actually in a secular context, although I'm working on a piece right now. I have it right in front of me on my desk, and I'm actually holding it in my right hand. Um, which I've uh, you know, worked in hyssop and um, roses and oak, which are all plants with um, some symbolic uh, associations. So, can I interrupt you and ask you, when you went sure. through, when, when you got this commission, did you have to go through and research all of the different these different types of plants that would have been applicable for for this specific piece? Well, yes, um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't uh, so exhaustive that it took me you know days upon days um, because I was looking at the list of plants kind of... and I was thinking, wow, <laughs> it was like a lot of work to try to figure out what, yeah. Well, early medicine didn't have a huge array of um, didn't have a whole lot of tricks tricks up its sleeve, and so it was pretty easy to identify three or four of them. Um, I did a, a drawing of the Sorrowful Mysteries of the Rosary in which I worked into the decorative borders, um, plants that were all associated with the Passion of Christ. And so there was um, there was hyssop, there was grapevine, uh, there was the species of tree that was um, used for the crown of thorns, and which has been you know, verified through the relics of the crown of thorns. I think it's called a, it's a jujube tree or something like that. Um, and I had olives for, you know, Gethsemane and, so, um, and passion vine, too. So, so well, yeah, you have to put that in there. Um, but, I mean, do you, do you, so do your works come with a, I mean, I'm thinking, like, for most people, I mean, they probably just look at something like that, like a, a art like that, and they just think, oh, yeah, it looks nice, you know. But, I mean, unless they know what you know, you know what I mean. There's not going to be that kind of appreciation there. Do you do you send out like a pamphlet with your work saying, you know, these these are all the, the the symbolic things about this work. You know why it should be appreciated. Well, the um the works that I've all mentioned were all commissioned ones, and so the patrons and I discuss all that um, ahead of time, and um, you know, and sometimes they provide some suggestions, and I tell them about it. I think that. It is a bit of a pity that we've lost so much of this idea that the world is um, sort of God-revealing. I think that's kind of the key to understanding the medieval worldview, is that the whole world, all of creation, is a theophany that bears the stamp of its maker. And during the Middle Ages, um, they produced books. Um, You perhaps have heard of the bestiary. There was another one called the herbal or lapidary, sometimes combined into a single volume in which they explained all the sort of ways in which the 
members of the plant and animal and and mineral kingdoms uh, served as symbols or reminders of God. And so I reference those works a lot when I'm looking for these types of um, these types of projects when I'm looking for to try to determine what sort of plants or what sort of uh, you know, decorative elements to put in a particular project. Those are really valuable, and um, and I wish that this were common knowledge. Uh, but this, this is where true. we get is this where we get the idea of of the rood, the uh, pelican that you know you're talking about the bestiary and the type of uh, associated religious symbolism, I guess, with certain certain animals or certain plants, and this will be where we get, like on some of our uh, oh, our priests on the vestments or say on the, the altar cloths they'll have, you know, the like the pelican, I'm just thinking of the pelican as the first one that comes to mind for me with, where he's well, clipping his own breast kind of thing. Well, I'm not really historian enough to say whether the bestiary is the origin of these um, traditions or whether it simply compiled them. But certainly, if you if you get a copy of a bestiary um, with a translation that you can read, and there are some available in English, you know, it goes through um, a whole list of animals. And the pelican is certainly very prominent because it's a long-standing Christological symbol. Um, is uh, you know, is mentioned in the Corpus Christi office that was composed by Thomas Aquinas. Um, and it's because it was believed that um, the pelican's chicks were sort of born uh, dead and that the pelican would wound its own breast and feed blood to these chicks, which would bring them back to life after three days, which is obvious, you know, parallels with the passion of our Lord and, and um, you know, his atoning sacrifice. Um, right. Now, I know for, for modern people, there's sometimes a temptation to sort of snicker at that because we know that, like, you know, zoologically speaking, nobody has observed pelicans doing this in a very long time. And to simply say, oh, well, that's just, you know, medieval naivete. But I like to think that the sort of natural historians of that age were working with the best knowledge that they had, and that even if they might have been mistaken in this or that detail, it doesn't mean that their method is wrong. I think that the reason that we no longer look at pelicans or lions or, you know, hedgehogs or whatever sort of uh, creature and see symbols of Christ in it is not because they're not there, it's because they've just stopped looking. Um, and so it's important for me to try to uphold this tradition, just to tell people, you know, keep looking, um, because I think if you look for them, you'll find them. Uh, even in uh, even using our more modern scientific knowledge of, of the animal and, you know, vegetable kingdoms. Have you, have you found, have you ever had an opportunity to introduce anything that you... I mean, I suppose it'd be like a, if you it wouldn't be necessarily a commissioned work, but say like in a personal work of yours, where you've you know paid attention to um, your surroundings or, or animals that you come in contact with, where they held kind of a, some kind of a, a symbolism for you. Because, like you say, the times change, and we we have a greater understanding now of how the world works, and and you know what they would have called, you know, like you said, medieval naivete. Um, but but that doesn't mean that we don't have or that that we can't see those same things if we're living everything if we're living by the light of God I guess you could say so have you found have you ever discovered yourself putting anything like that into your own work well you know I've not done it recently but um, 
I did a lot maybe two or three years ago. This is one of my specialties. Before I turned to religious art, I was drawing a lot of biological illustration already. And one of the things that I really drew a lot was um, sort of uh, microbiological forms, things like you would see under a microscope. And so I started, you know, adding some of these into some of the decorative elements of religious artwork. And I started thinking about some of the possible um, the possible symbolic uh, meanings of these little forms of these, micros- these microscopic creatures. And so you look at some of my older works, and it's not because I've abandoned the idea that I think it's bad. I've just sort of um, been trying out some other ideas recently. I haven't done it lately. But um, I put in, you know, little cell organelles and things and thinking, oh, well, this is a mitochondria, and that's sort of the, the source of the power and the energy of a cell. So I'll put it inside the cross to show that the cross is, like, life-giving or, like, um, or like little planarian worms, which are the sort of things that you, you know, you cut them up with razor blades in high school science classes, and they, they sort of regenerate into three or four little worms. And thinking, well, this, is, this has some sort of parallel. You know, this reminds me of, you know, the multiplication of loaves and fishes, of, you know, the fraction of the Eucharist, which doesn't ever get, you know, divided in substance. And so I, I, love that I, was thinking, I have to say the geek in me is loving that because it's like a whole new application of, like, you know, modern science to medieval manuscript-type illumination. That, that For me, that's great. Yeah, you know, there was actually, I'm not the first artist to think of this either. Um, I... It was really after I had already been doing this sort of thing that I came across a quotation from a Spanish priest who was also a very, very fine artist. And he said it in 1911. His name was Reverend Felix Granda. But he was basically encouraging um, artists, sacred artists, to uh, really look at these sort of um, uh, microbiological forms that we see through the microscope and to explore their symbolic um, and possibilities in sacred art. And so I'm, I'm glad that I, um, well, I'm glad to be doing so. And I'm glad I'm not the only person who's thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> At the risk of sounding unoriginal. <laughs> um, well, let me take a break here. I'm going to take a break. We're about, well, we're a little more than halfway through, actually. Um, but I'm going to welcome our, our listeners to the show. Uh, you're listening to The Beautiful Things, a radio show discussing Catholic perspectives on the arts. I'm your host, Magdalene Zapp, and I'm joined tonight by Mr. Daniel Mitsui, a manuscript illuminator. Is that what they call you, an illuminator? You're an illuminator? What do you call yourself? I usually just call myself an artist because it requires less explanation. <laughs> right. Um, we're not taking any calls tonight, but as always, you can contact us via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at True Restoration. We also have a Facebook page, um, Restoration Radio. Also, if you're listening uh, via iTunes to this broadcast, we encourage you to show your support by giving us a rating. Um, So I wanted to get into, in the second half of the show, I guess less than the second half of the show, I wanted to get into talking about um, some of the the techniques um, involved in creating an illuminated manuscript. And I know it's a big, big topic to cover, so I guess Mm -hmm. give us maybe like the longer of the short, short version. Well, I should start by by giving the caveat that I have not yet created a complete book myself. Um, a great many of my works are formatted like um, like a single page out of an illuminated manuscript, but as for you know creating an entire volume, binding volume? it, is that, what, doesn't doesn't that take years to do? 
Well, if you work on it, um, you know, continuously as a full-time profession, I don't think it would take necessarily years. It depends on the size of the book, too. Um, I, you know, the I have to say, I know I'm interrupting you from your goal, but I have to say I've dabbled <laughs> in, in manuscript illumination, dabbled enough to know that the idea of completing a whole book, I mean, a whole doing a whole page in and of itself is just daunting enough, but like the whole a whole book... Is that like your your ultimate goal as an artist is to do a whole book, illuminated book? I would like to, yes. And I think that I will probably have opportunity to do that um, at least several times in my life. Um, it's, uh, I think, less than just the you know, logistical task of, you know, doing it artistically is to find funding for it because it's a very expensive proposition to create all those drawings. Um, but as for taking so long... Um, the really amazing thing is that you know, we mentioned the I mentioned the Lindisfarne Gospels, which is probably second only to the Book of Kells among that um, that particular style of manuscript, and they're able to actually date the um, the production of that manuscript fairly accurately because they know the names of all the men who worked on it, and it appears to have been completed within um, just a few years. Um, but they had so, an army uh, of people working on it, didn't they? Well, it was a single scribe, actually. His name was Adfrith. Um He later became oh. Bishop of Montesferent. But he was, um, by all uh, um, evidence, was the sole illustrator and scribe for that book. Um, now, obviously, he's somebody living in a monastery, and so you have uh, you know, a certain discipline of life and not all necessarily the cares of uh, cares of the world to interfere with that, but um, certainly also working under adverse conditions in terms of weather and, um, you know, I don't know if the Vikings showed up any time during that. <laughs> during well, not production. to mention the actual process itself is, which which we will get into, correct? Somewhat. Sure. Sure. Is, is incredibly time consuming. Yes. Um, well, you did have, um, that, like I said, that the fact that you had that single scribe create that manuscript was a bit um, unusual in that most medieval scriptoria, at least as far as I can tell from the books I've read, and had a certain division of labor. You would have some people who would either be, you know, monks of the monastery, or perhaps um, if this were being produced by lay people, a different, you know, workshop, would produce the vellum, basically um, preparing sheepskin, calfskin, or goatskin. Calfskin being the most, um, probably the finest of the materials, and the ones that I like to work on best. Um, you know, scraping it down, trimming it to size, and providing that. You would have uh, probably, well, the next thing you would probably do is... Um, do you do that yourself? I don't do it myself. No, I buy it from I buy it from other tanners, from tanners. Um, I've got a couple of suppliers. So I don't have access to the livestock or the, the equipment. So, so you're not that much of a purist where you're going to, you know, grind your own, you know, jewels and... Well, you know, I might actually and... get into that at some point, but um, I, at this at, at this stage in my life, logistically, it would be pretty difficult. I, I know a man who is also doing manuscript illumination who does grind his own pigments, and I might ask him for some lessons in doing that sometime in the future. Um, but you would uh, you'd take the vellum and you would um, you would use a, like a sharp object to prick holes in it in order to determine where like the the guidelines are, so you have a consistent. Um, you know, text block size on each page, and you would rule it. Um, they didn't really have pencils back then because they hadn't discovered like these um, uh, 
mineable graphite until I think maybe the 1600s. And so they would they would like draw out guidelines with um, you know usually like a metal point, like a piece of silver or lead that you would use to kind of do the what you use a pencil for now. And generally they did calligraphy first, uh, gilding second, and colors third. And then you would bind it. Um, I think there's is this all the, uh, is this all the same person doing the different no no stages? no not necessarily um, I think that you would probably have um, certainly in a monastic scriptorium you'd probably have you know the most talented uh, scribe do the writing and the most talented artist do the do the drawing. There's actually some extant manuscripts that show very obvious evidence of this division of labor because the the monk who drew the outlines in black ink, left basically like sort of essentially paint-by-numbers instructions for the colorists. Like if you look closely at these these pictures of, you know, you know Christ and the saints and our lady, in, in like the middle of the robe, there'd be like a little letter A for like, you know, azure or however you say it. And I think it was French. And a little, you know, just a little letter. So the one, so, sorry, the one at the end of the process, doing the coloring, he just kind of had no choice about... I mean, he had a choice, obviously, as to the colors, but, I mean, if he really didn't like the way this whole thing turned out, he kind of just had to put up with well, it. I, yeah, I assume he was not one of, of the highest authority, and he was probably just taking instruction, maybe an apprentice or a novice was doing that. But, um, but yeah, there was a certain division of labor that was common in the scriptoria. Um, you know, and you'd have probably somebody else do the binding, um, as to whether they bound the pages before eliminating them, I think is something of a artist historical controversy. Um, they don't really know exactly what the order of the production was. Um, you, you mean it's argued whether or not they would bind them before, whether they bound the book before they did the actual artwork on it? Yes, yes. I was just reading the other day in a, in a art history book that they don't really, there's not really agreement as to which was the more common method. Now, it is true that if you look at pictures like illustrations of monks in the scriptorium, or perhaps more common would be portraits of the evangelists writing writing down their their gospels, is that they almost always seem to be portrayed writing into a bound book. Which, if that were not the way that it was actually done, it would be kind of curious for that to grow up as an artistic convention. Um, as to who's correct in that in that matter, I I'm not really qualified to say. Right. Um, so how long, you said it would, it would take um, several years, like three or four, complete a book. Is that short on the time frame, or that would be about average? Well, these books vary in size a whole lot. I mean, some of them are just massive, and some of them are, you know, things that you could pick up and probably page through with a single hand. Um and so it's hard, it's hard to say just because there's such a difference in scale between some of them. Um, but, I mean, if I were to receive a commission to illuminate an entire book um, and I were told, if I were given a, the means to work on it exclusively without any other drawings, I mean, I could probably produce um, like an octavo-sized page, which is, you know, maybe like seven inches by ten, maybe, maybe one a week, Um Probably I'd give myself two weeks if it were in color and, you know, maybe three to be safe. But, um, you know, probably a 50-page book I could do in a year. It's, um, 
you know, it depends somewhat on the on the size and the page count, but uh, but I don't think it's so daunting a task that I wouldn't try to undertake it. And I'm actually hoping to produce some of my first complete books uh, in the coming years, which these ones will be done sort of more as fine press books, kind of imitating the um, you know, early 15th century printing more than manuscript illumination. Are these commissioned works? Or... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Say that again. Are they commissioned works or are they just personal? Um, a couple of them are things that I'm preparing on speculation. At least one I'm uh, most likely going to receive a commission for. Um, but these are things that are more um, kind of imitating the, uh, the early printers. But once I do them, I'll have a better idea. I could probably, if you interview me after I finished one of them, I could tell you more about the processes of you know binding and pagination and working on a, uh, a work of that scale, even if it's not strictly an illuminated manuscript the first time around. <laughs> right. Um, did, have you found any um, like modern applications towards illumination that can be used in the art produced. I mean, I can't imagine that your techniques are not simplified somehow by modern technology. Uh, like well, shortcuts, so to speak, I guess. Well, my approach basically is that I want to I want to create the best possible result I can within the skills that I have at the time. And, you know, probably nine times out of ten the best technique to use is the traditional one. Um, you know, calfskin, really, there's no substitute for it. No kind of paper is really a sign of a drawing material, and so I like to draw on calfskin. Um, is that is that how you I, started out, or did you start out? No, I started in your early paper. years of doing this. Yeah, I started, you know, I started on paper and uh, eventually did some experiments on calfskin and liked it a lot, and so I do, you know, maybe half of my works are on calfskin vellum and maybe half on paper. Um, you know, I don't really know uh, egg tempera painting, which is what would have been used in the late Middle Ages for a lot of the color work. And so I use um, kind of pigment-based calligraphers eggs, which, um, you know, I might uh, try to learn the egg tempera technique because you can do a lot of things with it that you can't with the, um, the inks that I'm using, but it's not something I've mastered yet. Um, you know, as for some other modern materials, like uh, I think I already mentioned pencils, um, are very convenient, and they didn't really exist during the Middle Ages because they didn't have um, quite a, they didn't find, I think, mineable graphite till later. Pencils and erasers are, are you know, much easier to use than, than metal point. Um, you know, in some cases, I find that I'm, I have access to materials that are somewhat better even than the, than the, the medieval materials, and that I think that the medieval artists would have used had they had them available. Um, an obvious example of that is in um, an illuminated manuscript, you embellish it with gold leaf, um, usually, and if you want a silver color, what you have available is silver leaf or perhaps tin. Well, silver has the disadvantage that it tarnishes, and so if you look at those manuscripts now, if they've been opened and exposed to air, all the silver has turned black. They didn't have, um, they didn't know about platinum group metals back then, um, whereas right. now I can buy I can buy palladium leaf, which is actually not even that much more expensive than gold leaf, and I can use that for the silver colors, um, for the silver embellishments. And so I use that, um, which the medieval artist didn't have. I also I use um, a Japanese 
sort of uh, calligraphy ink. It's called sumi ink, which is, I think it uses um, vegetable soot as its pigment base. And that's basically just carbon. And so there were carbon-based inks in the Middle Ages, but the era that I'm studying most often would have used oak gall ink, which is prepared from um, from these sort of growths that are um, oak trees. And the unfortunate thing about that kind of ink is that it's somewhat acidic, and so it's not archival. And a lot of this is sort of a big issue with um, preservationists now is that a lot of these medieval illuminated manuscripts are suffering because the ink is starting to eat through the pages. And so oh. I'm not going to I'm not going to like use oak gall ink just to be accurate to the time period because I think it's objectively an inferior material. Um, right. Anything that you thought they would have taken advantage of, then <coughs> you have no problems in using. Yeah, um, I think that I think that if they were aware of this particular property of the oak gall ink, they would have abandoned it. But it just it doesn't you know the results don't show up for a long time, and so I guess it escaped notice. And um, what about your I, colors? Like obviously back then, like what they would have used. I know they used uh, gemstones for for um, like I, oh what was it? The blue color that they used was like extremely. Uh, lapis lazuli was was um, powdered to make the ultramarine pigment. What was uh, it? Like I said, uh, ultramarine is the name of it as a pigment, um, but it's lapis lazuli is if it's in a gem form. And uh, you know, like I said, I use bottled calligraphers. They're pigment based. Um, it's it's a they're water soluble pigment based inks. I would like to learn to do traditional egg tempera painting, which is basically just taking ground pigment and mixing it with water and egg yolk. And um, that's what would have been used in a prestigious colored manuscript of the 14th or 15th centuries. And it's something that I want to pick up. Um, I would like to learn it in the next maybe two or three years. And once I do that, I'll probably offer that as the most, um, as sort of the finest uh, set of materials that I have. Um, yeah, I was, gonna, I, I was going to ask you, like, it was relative worth-wise. I mean, I would think, like, if I was going to commission you to do a work that was that close to a reproduction of that kind of, of the medieval illuminated technique, that it would be, I mean, there's, there's how many artists are there that do what you do, and on top of it, do it like that. You know, I mean, that is not just kind of like a a fake, not fake, but but a a shortcut version of you know illuminated manuscripts. I, I can't imagine there are very many, which would 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 mean that for those who wanted to commission a work, you would be within your rights, so to speak, to you know charge you know quite a bit. You know, I believe in just prices, and I, I think I charge fairly for the amount of work I put in. And I'm always trying to improve my techniques and my materials. Um, that's really what I you know, take satisfaction in as an artist, is that I see the work getting better over time. And I think that's partly because I've embraced more and more of the traditional materials and learned to use them. Um, there was a time when I found the prospect of using, like, actual animal skin as a substrate kind of daunting. And now I've really embraced that, and I think my best works are done on skin. Um, I'm sort of uh, making a transition between using um, kind of like 
modern technical pens for the detail work to using dip pens um, exclusively. Um, yeah, I haven't quite made that transition in full yet, but I've been uh, you know, practicing. I've not gotten to the point where I'm working with like uh, feather quills, but maybe I'll make that leap in another few years. Um, and so that would uh, be that would be really purist. That's that's hardcore purist right there. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I've, been, I've, been play, I've been playing around with one lately, and I just haven't been able to get the lines quite as fine as I can with the metal tip pens. And so I'm using the metal ones because at this at the level of skill that I have now, that's where I get the best results. But I've I've heard it said by calligraphers that you can get a finer line with a quill than anything else. And so it's something that that I'm you know working toward. <laughs> working right. Toward. Well. As I mentioned, so artists who do what you do are very rare, right? Am I correct in, in saying that? Well, I, I suppose. Um, I don't know how many there ought to be, but uh, yeah, I only know a few others. <laughs> right. So my question is, just has that proven to be a double-edged sword? Um, good in the sense that comp- the competition pool is small, but bad in the sense that very few artists such as yourself are are even known and and perhaps that makes like demand to be less. Well, I would say that I don't really view the other artists as competitors. Um the nice thing about being an artist is that it's not really a a fungible job. I mean, when somebody comes to me with a commission, they're not thinking, well, I need an artist to do this. They're coming because they want my art specifically. And so they, they'll find me if they if that's what they want. Well, that uh, must so be incredibly that, gratifying, right? It is. It's it's nice to um, it's nice to be able to have that sort of security, knowing that if I even if I'm on the other side of the world, I could probably still have my same set of patrons. Um, and so I don't really think of these other artists as competitors. I think that we would all benefit if there were just a more vibrant uh, culture of creating this type of art and of people commissioning it and patronizing it. I think what would be most helpful of all is if there were um, more people had in mind that, you know, patronizing the arts and whether that's manuscripts, whether that's paintings or whether that's, you know, composing music or whatever is the sort of thing that um, people of ordinary means can and should do. I think there's kind of just this cultural idea now that, you can spend as much money as you want on certain things, um, you know, like technology or automobiles or, you know, education, any number of things that people are willing to invest large sums of money in, but that, you know, patronizing the art is exclusively the province of the super wealthy or of institutions. And from the artists that I know, um, I'm including in there not just visual artists, but composers also, and is that I generally think that you know, the prices are not so high that an ordinary person couldn't commission you know, a modest work. And I very often think that other artists under undersell themselves. Um, it's it's rare for me to go to like an art gallery or, um, you know, a, an art show where I see other people doing something similar and 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 not think that they, they really are not getting their full share in some cases. Right. But in any case, I think that it would be a healthier, you know, there would be more business for everybody and more um and more art produced just if um 
if there were more artists working and more people patronizing it. And so I don't um, I don't look at the rarity of of the type of work that I do as as really a benefit. It's just a circumstance. It is what it is. Right. What was your What was your most recent uh, big commission? I know you had some some like you mentioned the American. Was it the American Surgeons Association? Uh, yeah, College of Surgeons. Okay. That was the most recent big drawing that I finished. Um, and like I said, that was kind of unusual because it was secular. Um, as for religious work, um, currently I'm working on a set of altar cards that I'm going to do all the calligraphy myself. And I have a drawing in the works right in front of me that is of the Holy Trinity, but with some... Uh, you know, some elements of the Sacred Heart spirituality worked into it. I have a commission for another Japanese-style work of um, St. Michael fighting uh, the, the dragon from the Book of the Apocalypse. And uh, what others am I working on? I recently finished a series of the Stations of the Cross. Um, they were fairly small, like 5 by 7 but um, you know, it was the full 14. I worked on that uh, on and off for well, probably about two years. I've just finished the last ones on Monday. Um, so those are some of the things that I'm working on now. Do you um, do you ever get commissioned to do... Um, I know this is not uh, in your... Well, it's not manuscripts, but do, does anybody ever approach you about, about doing um, church interiors, you know, like some of the, the paintings, painting design for church interiors, considering that it's within, like, I know that, like, that that type, that style of decor is uh, very attractive to traditional Catholics, among others, um, for churches, um, like the, the late medieval, the scrolls and, you know, flowers yeah, and whatnot. You know, I- I've discussed projects like that, you know, many times, and none of them have ever come to fruition yet. Um, I'm at a bit of a disadvantage there because I don't have really an architectural background, and I also don't have the means at this time in my life to actually create the work myself. Um, You know, that requires something of a background in, you know, fresco painting or architecture or things on a larger scale and I work almost exclusively on a very small scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I would be, you know, quite happy to, you know, consult with people about that, um, you know, to prepare designs as a guide for architects or for designers. But I think generally that um, the people who are doing that kind of work like to do it themselves. Um, it's sort of a, I, I, I don't know really firsthand, but I imagine that that in the case of when they get to actually a traditional project that's, they probably uh, really treasure that and would want to want to be involved in all the creative aspects as well instead of instead of bringing in an outsider. Although that's really just speculation. Um, and if one wanted to work with me, I'd be I'd be happy to talk about it. Right. Um, in the the pre-show, we were um, discussing a little bit one of the works that you did recently, the uh, Japanese-styled rendition of Saint Michael the Archangel. Um, and I was really drawn to that idea of Catholic saints rendered in artistic styles distinctive to certain locales. Um, 
to be honest, I had never seen before um, any saints in the Japanese style. I think I've seen a rendition of Our Lady before, um, but is that is that unbroken territory, so to speak? Well, I don't. Um, well, first, let me give credit where credit is due. I did not think of the idea myself. I was approached by a priest who um, belongs to a missionary order that had done work in Japan, and he asked me, you know, can I? can I attempt this, do uh, St. Michael in the style of the Japanese woodblock print? And I accepted the commission. It was not something I'd ever thought about doing before. And I really enjoyed it, and it was very popular. People really, really liked that drawing. And I got, I started to get more commissions in that of the same idea. I did a Our Lady of Perpetual Help. I did St. Raphael. And I'm a, like I mentioned, I'm going to draw one of uh, St. Michael and the dragon from the apocalypse. Um, you know, my my guide whenever I try that sort of exploration is um, there was something that was said at the Second Council of Nicaea, which is that, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have it memorized, is that the composition and arrangement of subject in religious art does not belong to the artist. It belongs to the Catholic Church and to the fathers of the Church. And so, really, the execution is the part that belongs to the artist. And so, if I'm trying to do this transposition of traditional Catholic iconography into, for example, Japanese art, I want to make sure that I'm looking at a historic works of art produced within Christendom and referencing those for the ideas as to what goes into this drawing, how is it arranged, how is it placed, what is the essential content. And then, you know, actually realizing it in a very different style. And so I think that, you know, I I don't want to be, you know, too incautious about that because I know there are certain, you know, implications to the the figuration and the approach to the, the Japanese art beyond simply the subject matter. But I think that that principle gives a certain license in the execution and that I would be, I feel pretty comfortable in, creating a Japanese style of work if I'm being true in subject arrangement of it to traditional medieval art. Um, you know, there are other styles that I'm curious about exploring in the same way. I really love, um, I really love Persian and Mughal miniature painting. Um, there are some historic styles from India that I find very fascinating aesthetically and would love to, you know, put to the service of, you know, true religion. And um, well, that, I find as to whether these, I was going to say even like even some of the uh, the um, Eastern European or, or Russian type of uh, illustration um, maybe could be applied in that same sort of sense, thinking about types of execution, mm-hmm. like you were saying. Yes, and as to whether any of this is unexplored territory, I. You know, I don't really know if anybody has attempted this before, but um, it, it's not really important to me that I'm being the first, or I'm not looking at this as the idea that this is not going to be my my. You're not a maverick. Contra- no, I'm not. I'm not really trying to be a maverick here. I'm just trying to make good artwork, and and so if I if I am the first, then I then I, I guess I'm happy to be, and if I'm not, I'm also happy to be. I just. I want I want the drawings to be beautiful and I want them to be true also. Right. 
Well, you have, um, I wanted to share about your blog. Um, listeners can go to www.danielmitsui.com. You can go there and see some of his um, his work that he's done, some of his commissioned pieces. Also, there's that, the, uh, you still have the print up, correct, of, of the, uh, the St. Michael one that we were just speaking of? Yes, it's in the religious art section. If you scroll down, there's a link to a second religious art page, and so it's um, you have to follow a couple of links, but it's there. Um, I wanted to ask you, I mean, obviously, if, you, if anybody goes to your blog, it's it's fairly obvious right away that this is your this is your thing, this is your love, your passion, um, this type of artwork. Um, why do you think it is that, that, that this really caught and held your attention? Um, you say as young as fourteen when you when you first came you first came across it. Well, I'd say it goes back further than that, and I can't really explain it. Um, from earliest childhood, I always had a very strong attraction to anything of of the Middle Ages. Um, I remember, you know, there was a, you know, I loved the the painted backgrounds that were done by Ivan Darrell for the um, that Sleeping Beauty animated motion picture. I loved the castles made out of Legos. I loved. Uh, some of the illustrated books by Trina Shard-Hyman that were done up like illuminated manuscripts. And throughout my whole life, there's just been this pull to, to medieval art and culture that I can't explain. And it's always been with me. And in some ways, it parallels really my 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 you know faith in, in the Catholic Church, which I was not really raised religiously. Um, I wasn't baptized until an adult, but I, you know, I always had this love for the Catholic Church and for the Middle Ages, and I can't explain it. Um, so I suppose it's just the grace of God, or if it's anything else, I'll. Um, See, I find I find it interesting. I find it interesting because um, I, I wasn't raised well. I mean, I was I was always, I've always been Catholic, but I've always been um, drawn to that as well, but. For me, it was kind of because it was more Catholic, if that makes sense, than what I was being exposed to at the time. So, But that seems an interesting point to me if you're saying that for you, it wasn't that way. Like, for, you know, it's hard for me to understand, I guess, how you can have an appreciation for that, for the culture of the Middle Ages without also understanding what that culture was informed by. Well, I mean, perhaps the fascination and the religious faith were, um, you know, always sort of bound together in my mind, but they're not things that I can really rationally account for. And, um, and, uh, yeah, I suppose that's all, that's all you can say. Well, I, that's what Plato, I think it was uh, Plato would say that, you know, everybody, those who are artists are given a gift to, you know, you know I might be confusing that with Aristotle. I'm no philosopher either. But one of them, too, <laughs> said that, you know, being an artist was a special gift from God. Or, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, evidently, it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a great grace. Um, one, one more question, and I think we're going to be, we're going to be running out of time pretty soon. Um, but so I had mentioned before, like without the the illuminated manuscripts, we wouldn't necessarily have the works of Aristotle and Plato or the history of the Battle of Hastings and um, many other things. Um, 
So in that alone, in the sense of what they've passed on to us, their value is, is incredibly high. What do you think what do you think will be modern man's contribution? Like are, are we capable of having something of like importance and permanence to contribute to the future in that same sense where it's it's not only beautiful, physically beautiful where you can appreciate it, but it's also intellectually stimulating and a a record or a con- you know do you understand what I'm saying like a, an intellectual contribution to the future. Well, um, it's hard to answer from the perspective of the current time, and I suppose in the future we'll know whether that's true or not. Um, as for, you know, what I'm trying to do, um, I'm trying to keep a tradition alive, and I hope that, um, that that in itself is a contribution. I think that modern people are in a bit of a somewhat of a unique situation. I wouldn't necessarily call it an advantage, but because just in terms of our culture, our religion, our philosophy has been so completely wiped clean, or not even clean, but it's been so completely destroyed, I guess is the way to say it. Um, our, our, you know, just uh, we've become so far removed from the culture of you know, medieval Christendom and that's that we don't have a lot of baggage going into um, an artistic endeavor. And so, as such, I don't really feel a necessity to try to um, do anything other than uh, try to find what the best art and the best influences are and to use those. Um, Whereas in other times in history, you mostly inherited the sort of styles and the sort of art that you worked in. It was part of what was common to your culture. And now I don't think we have any real, you know, genuine native culture. I mean, our, our entire imagination and art is largely supplied to us by, you know, Hollywood and the advertising industry and whatever else. And so, I mean, I don't think that's a good situation, but it's one that I think I have to make the best of as an artist and to say, you know, I don't really have, I don't really feel any need to um, to do work like every like other people in our time are doing. I can look back on the past and really just try to um, recreate that. And, and well, uh, I don't me, feel like I'm losing a lot that way. It seems to me though, that, I mean, obviously, even like a recreation of of what they did, obviously, because you, you come from now, you don't come from then. So I think Catholic artists are in a unique position of, I mean, you mentioned having a, you know, it's like wiped clean, but we're, we're in a unique position to, to kind of start fresh with a different, a different mm-hmm. style. Like we'll have, you know, in the future, for those who are in the future looking back, I think it's kind of inevitable that Catholic artists will have their own niche, their own particular style, assuming that, you know, the world's not ending in, you know, three years or something like that. But, yeah. I think that when I when I look at art and I say what kind of art do I want to make and what kind of art do I want to look at as an influence for what I make, because of this historic you know situation that we find ourselves in, I don't feel a need to say I want to make art that is like what other people of my nation make or like what other people of my you know city make. You know I can say you know I really just want to make the best art and look at the best art. And um, like I said, I think that. 
the uh, the principles that animated that arc are universal. That they're not that they're not dead. That we haven't exhausted the ideas of medieval art. And in fact, I don't think they've even you know. I think there's much more to explore there. Perhaps you know. Perhaps you know far more than was even done during the the thousand years that we generally call the Middle Ages. Um, the ideas. Are well, and two. And too, like you mentioned earlier, that can be added. Not only is there the exploration of of what's already been of, like, say, within the context of that time, that 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 could have been explored, but there's also the the possibilities now, like you mentioned earlier, about you know finding new new symbolisms, Christological or symbolic symbolisms of of life as we know it. That that that's a yeah. whole new area of exploration too. Yeah, I think that once you restore the theophanic worldview, basically, you know, inhabit reality and see God there, that everything else follows from there, and that whatever whatever there is to be discovered or explored or developed or added to in this great tradition of art that um, that I'm trying to uh, continue uh, is going to be a fruit of just that very simple thing. That's you you live in reality and you, you try to see God in everything. And that I think is the key to the whole the whole medieval worldview. And that I think that's where artists and philosophers are similar. They look at they look at life with wonder. I remember I can't remember I can't place the quote, but I remember somebody once saying that about philosopher. A philosopher looks at the world with wonder. And I think in the same way, like a true artist see that wonder. Um, we'll look in the world with wonder and, and see God. So I think that's, a, that's an excellent point you make. Certainly something for all all Catholic artists everywhere to remember. Um, so you're available to uh, universities or conferences for lecturing, correct? Yes, I actually I gave a lecture at a Catholic university um, a couple months ago and I'm going to give a lecture in Indiana um, in July. Um, you know, speaking is not my first profession. I mean, I'm an artist before all else, but um, but I do do some speaking, and uh, you know, I have some students too. Do a little bit of teaching. Um, so those are all things that are just part of part of my work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, anybody who wants to um, have Mr. Mitsui talk uh, at their college or conference or whatever. Um his uh he can be reached at Dan Mitsui D A N M I T S U I at hotmail dot com. Email's the easiest way to reach him. Um we're about out of time. You've been listening to Restoration Radio Restoration Radio's The Beautiful Things discussing medieval manuscript illumination. I'm your host, Magdalene Zapp. And my guest tonight has been Mr. Daniel Mitsui, illumination artist, or just artist. His website is www.danielmitsui.com. And there you can find prints for sale, his information if you would like to commission a piece from him, and a link to his blog. Uh, Mr. Mitsui, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. I I, I enjoyed the interview, and I'm very flattered by the invitation. (laughs) Um, We will invite our listeners to join us next month for more Catholic discussion on the arts. 
As always, your, um, your support is invaluable. If you would like to contribute to the continuation, the continuation of Catholic Radio, you can donate electronically via the donate button at www.truerestoration.blogspot.com or you can send a check to True Restoration Press at 8218 Neiman Road, Lenexa, Kansas, L-E-N-E-X-A, 66214. Um... And right now I'm going to leave you with our opening music, the medieval polyphonic version of the Salve Mater. Thank you for joining us, and good night. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.